Good morning. In today's headlines, impeachment proceedings against U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland could be in the works. Find out what House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan had to say about the possibility. The trial date for former President Trump's classified documents case has been set. Find out when, what's next, and which side benefits the most from the selected date. Updates on the war in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say a Russian air attack killed one person and injured nearly 20 others yesterday. And Moscow says it's thwarted a terrorist attack. We have the details. A key judicial overhaul vote will be held today in Israel. Tens of thousands of supporters and opponents take to the streets in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem as tensions over the move heat up. The days of Twitter's familiar blue bird logo are coming to an end. Elon Musk opts to replace the bird with a new symbol. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Monday, July 24th. Well, Evelyn, this is some pretty serious stuff, what Rep. Jordan is alleging, especially considering that these agents were saying that Hunter should be charged with harsher crimes than the ones that he ultimately pleaded out to. Right. So Representative Rokana actually said that agents tend to be harsher and more aggressive than compared to what actually happens when it comes to the judicial process or the enforcement of law. That's right. They did have a little back and forth in the hearing. But you know, we, we know your time is busy, so we're going to jump right into the details of this. That's right, because House Republicans could be moving to impeach U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. That's according to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. Jordan's declaration comes after two IRS whistleblowers testified last week about the handling of tax fraud investigation of Hunter Biden. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan told Fox News Sunday that any impeachment effort against Garland would need to be decided by the entire Republican conference. Based on all this evidence that keeps piling up, based on what Senator Grassley released this week with the 1023 form, what we heard from the whistleblowers this past week, and the conflicting statements from the Justice Department, it sure looks like we're moving in that direction at a pretty quick pace. Jordan says he wrote to Garland in February to ask if a special counsel was needed in the investigation of Hunter Biden. He says Garland didn't respond, but that David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, did. Jordan says Weiss changed his story multiple times about having authority to bring charges in Hunter Biden's case. The IRS whistleblowers allege federal agencies interfered in the Hunter Biden investigation and that Weiss's authority was being limited by higher-ups in the Justice Department. Garland has denied there was any political interference in the Hunter Biden criminal probe. Jordan suggested President Biden could also face impeachment but would have to wait until House Oversight Chairman James Comer finishes his investigation may not be about the attorney general so much, although I think there's some important things there. It could be more about the president himself. Again, that's why Chairman Comer is going to continue to pursue his investigation. Garland is scheduled to appear at the annual House Judiciary Committee hearing in September. Jordan says there will be lots of questions for him on the topic when he comes before the committee. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is calling for an investigation into President Biden and his family. During a Sunday morning interview on Fox News, Kennedy expressed concern over allegations of corruption. That follows the release of an FBI file that alleges Biden was involved in a $10 million bribery scheme with a Ukrainian gas company that employed Hunter. This was while Joe Biden was vice president. 
The file was released last week by Senator Chuck Grassley. It alleges the owner of Burisma Holdings paid $5 million to both Hunter Biden and then-Vice President Biden to stop an investigation by a Ukrainian prosecutor. Kennedy also told Fox News that federal agencies have become weaponized as political instruments. The White House said last week the claims of bribery lacked credibility and were debunked during the Trump administration. And the trial date for former President Trump's classified documents case is set for May 20th next year. That means the trial will take place near the end of the GOP primaries. Judge Eileen Cannon made the decision on Friday. The date is a compromise between the two parties. The prosecution wanted it to take place late this year, whereas the defense requested a date after the presidential election in November next year. Trump's team argued having the trial before the election would disrupt his campaign schedule. They also said since the prosecution is coming from the administration of a sitting president against his chief political rival, the timeline must be carefully considered. Prosecutors said a delay was warranted, but only for several months, so the defense can get clearance to review classified material. Cannon disagreed with the defense's position that there will likely be considerable jury selection prejudice due to election publicity. And we're bringing in Lee Smith, author of The Permanent Coup and the Plot Against the President, for just some discussion on this. Lee, it's great to have you with us. Judge Cannon said there will be extensive pretrial motion practice on a range of factual and legal issues. So what do we expect to happen next in this case? Well, some of the things that are going to be happening is they'll, they'll be looking uh, to the Trump's defense team will be looking to see what kind of documents it can have access to, whether they'll be granted uh, what kind of clearances they'll be granted to look at the different materials. Um, and, and we'll see if they get to look at these 31 documents that uh, the government is using as the heart of its case, which again, it's, 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 it's not specifically a classified documents case. It's a charges brought under the Espionage Act. And these documents are said to uh, relate to national defense information. And these are the charges that Donald Trump is being brought uh, being brought up again, brought against Donald Trump. So we'll see what kind of access his defense attorneys have to this sort of stuff, what the government will allow, and also what uh, what Judge Cannon will, will be mediating. And as you know, Senator Graham said that Trump's not a spy. And of course, a lot of these charges stem from the Espionage Act, but it's a mischaracterization to say that Trump actually engaged in espionage. So does the prosecution have a case here? Uh, well, the Espionage Act case is very important. Senator Graham is correct. Donald Trump is not a spy. But let's remember, this goes back to 2016 when the FBI was investigating Donald Trump as a possible Russian agent. Right. And the press was putting out that uh, was putting out that narrative on behalf of the Clinton administration. So really the best way to see, the best way to see the trial of Donald Trump under Espionage Act charges is as a culmination of what started in 2016. It's very important for the ruling party to tag Donald Trump as someone who's an outsider, right? Someone who's not American, someone who does, who has betrayed the country. So, so again, Senator Graham is right, but the picture that the ruling party wants to draw, that Biden's Justice Department, uh, Biden's Justice Department wants to draw, is that Donald Trump is indeed a spy, and that's why the Espionage Act is crucial to this very, uh, th- th- this unlawful case that they're br- bringing against the uh, 2024 Republican Party frontrunner for the nomination. In other words, Joe Biden's likely rival for the 2024 election. 
And Lee, the trial is going to be decided by a jury over the course of two weeks. Is this typical for this kind of case, and does either side have an advantage here? Uh, no, I think it's going to be drawn very. It's going to be very, it's going to be very hard at the beginning of the case to find people who will look at this objectively, uh, and and you know it's going it's going to depend on what the uh, on what the alignment of of of, of the um, of Miami looks like right now, right? It's being Dade, Dade County. What it's going to look look. <clears throat> look like how many Trump supporters there are, how many Biden supporters there are, and that's what voir dire is going to look like. It's going to be finding out who supports Trump and who supports Biden, because obviously that's the way the jury is going to be drawn along those lines. So, Lee, do you think any publicity surrounding the election is going to affect the jury pool? I, I think the jury pool cannot help but be affected, uh, and, and I think they're obviously. I mean, the, the the election every four years. This is one of the most publicized things that we do in the United States, even more so than the Super Bowl. So, finding people who have no stake, finding people who can uh, who can look at this case objectively, is going to be very, very difficult. And Kevin, I think you can imagine the way that I the way that I see this case, the way that I've described it. It's farcical. So, I'd like. All Americans would understand and look at this case, the Justice Department bringing a case against the former president and Joe Biden's likely frontrunner is politicized. I would like to believe that all Americans can see that. The fact is that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen. There are many people who will be happy to see Donald Trump put away, Donald Trump convicted on these insane charges. This is an insanely politicized trial. So. Uh, whatever's going to happen, we're walking into really dangerous territory, not just for the American justice system, but for American society as a whole. Because what happens when you draw this narrative saying that the leader of one half of the country, the political uh, instrument of one half of the country is a foreign spy, you suggest that, you promote that narrative, it's destructive and it leads to, uh, it, it, it leads to ruptures in our public sphere. Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President, I appreciate the in-depth look you're getting us here. Thank you, Kevin. Despite legal woes, polls show Trump as a clear frontrunner in Iowa and South Carolina, beating other Republican rivals in the upcoming 2024 election. According to Fox Business polls, 46% of voters in Iowa said they support Trump. That's 30 points higher than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's, while 11% said they prefer Senator Tim Scott. Trump also holds a major lead in South Carolina, winning the support of 48% of voters. Coming in second was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley with support of 14%. DeSantis is close behind at 13% and Scott at 10%. The United Nations Command in North Korea are discussing the case of Travis King. That's according to the deputy commander of the force overseeing the Korean war truce. King is a U.S. Army private who sprinted into North Korea on July 18th while on a tour of the demilitarized zone. The incident landed Washington in a fresh dilemma with the nuclear-armed North Korea. Conversations between the United Nations Command and North Korea's military were conducted through a mechanism created under the Korean War Truce. The deputy commander added that tours in the joint security area have been suspended. North Korea's state media has not commented on King's situation, which is unusual considering their past responses to detained U.S. nationals. Stay with us. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was released from the hospital after having an emergency pacemaker implanted. This just in time to attend an important judicial overhaul vote as tensions rise.
and thousands of immigrant children in the U.S. illegally have been released from government custody. Concerns around the fact that they have tuberculosis, though their diseases are dormant. After the break, an analyst helps us understand the proper procedure for these kinds of releases. Welcome back. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was discharged from the hospital today after an emergency pacemaker implant. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on developments in Israel ahead of a key Knesset vote on a contentious judicial overhaul. Israeli protesters massed in Tel Aviv on Sunday in support of the judicial changes sought by Netanyahu. 24-year-old student Avia Cohen feels Israel needs the judicial reform. I'm here today to make it clear to the people that I've elected, to the people that I voted for, to the people that I support, that I am 100% in favor of this judicial reform. Cohen hopes the government follows through with everything she says they promised Israelis they would do. It would be a huge mistake to let anarchists who run absolute terror across our streets to win in this case when we're attempting, fully attempting a military coup. I think it would be a huge mistake to fall prey to that. Pro-reform protester Eli Rohn says he came with a group of professors from academia and industry. We gathered here today in order to show our support to the coalition and the government. The reform calls for sweeping changes aimed at curbing the powers of the judiciary, from limiting the Supreme Court's ability to challenge parliamentary decisions to changing the way judges are selected. Tens of thousands of opponents of the reform took to the streets in Jerusalem on Sunday, waving flags and beating drums. We feel that, uh, that there are not good intentions behind it, and we are very worried that we are not being listened to. They believe the reform will open the door to abuses of power. And we won't let these people who are messianic and dark government to take our freedom, our justice and our democracy. Netanyahu and his allies announced the reform plan in January, days after taking office. Intense pressure by protesters and labor strikes that halted outgoing flights and shut down parts of the economy caused them to pause it in March. After talks to find a compromise failed last month, Netanyahu said his government was pressing on with the overhaul. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Next, we have an update on the war in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say a Russian air attack killed one person and injured close to 20 others in the port city of Odessa yesterday. And in Russia, officials say a Ukrainian drone strike damaged two buildings. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. The governor of the Odessa region called it another night attack of the monsters. He says four children were among the 19 injured in the attacks, and that six houses and apartment buildings were hit by missiles. Odessa's largest church building located in the city's center was also struck. Ukraine's defense ministry says the cathedral has now been destroyed twice, first by Soviet leader Joseph Stalin and now by Russian President Vladimir Putin. The early 19th century cathedral was rebuilt when Ukraine gained independence from Moscow in 1991. Russia's defense ministry reported strikes on targets in the area, but denies targeting the cathedral. It says a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile probably hit the building. In Crimea, Russian-installed governor Sergei Aksyonov says an ammunition depot and a residential building were hit in a Ukrainian drone attack early Monday. 
He says 11 drones in the area were suppressed or intercepted. Russia's defense ministry says two Ukraine-launched drones were intercepted and destroyed in an attempted attack on Moscow early Monday. Two non-residential buildings were damaged during the attack. It's unclear if the drones deliberately targeted the buildings or crashed into them when they were downed. State news agencies reported that drone fragments were found about a mile away from the ministry's buildings. Russian authorities described the incident as a thwarted terrorist attack. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Department of Justice plans on taking legal action against Texas. That's in regards to a 1,000-foot buoy wall that's been installed in the Rio Grande River. Governor Greg Abbott put the barrier in place to stop illegal immigrants from crossing into Texas. The Justice Department says the buoys violate federal law and raise humanitarian concerns. It also cited risks to public safety and the environment. Governor Greg Abbott posted a response on Twitter. He says Texas has sovereign authority to defend its border. The DOJ gave Abbott a deadline that expires today to commit to removing the floating wall. It threatens to sue if Abbott doesn't comply. Immigrant children who have entered the U.S. unlawfully have been released from government custody. These thousands of children have been released over the course of a year from June to May this year. They have tuberculosis. Their infections are latent. We hear from an immigration analyst more about this release, which has recently been disclosed by the Department of Health and Human Services. Please welcome Jessica Vaughn, the Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies. Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. What is the standard protocol when it comes to the transfer of custody of illegal immigrant children who have latent diseases? Well, I'm not aware of any special policy to have a different process for kids who have some kind of latent infection that's different from the regular release process. The policy now is that HHS wants to release the kids to a sponsor as quickly as possible. Uh, They do everything uh, in their power to identify a sponsor. Sometimes that sponsor is a parent, sometimes it's another family member, but in more than 10% of the cases, it is you know, someone who is not related or not a guardian of the child. So they don't do home studies, they don't do background checks, they don't really do much of any vetting before they release the kids. The idea is to release them as quickly as possible and then make a phone call uh, 60 days later to check on the welfare of the child. So if a child has uh, a, some kind of communicable disease, they, you know, they are still released to the sponsors. Uh, and so you know, they, they, HHS is not um, trying to quarantine kids or you know, even we found even during COVID, there were no special procedures in place to deal with kids who could potentially be spreading something in the community uh, other than telling the sponsors and saying, well, you're going to deal with this, right? And just taking their word for it. And what is the rush? Why is there this push to have them be released as quickly as possible? Well, that is their philosophy. They believe that's in the best interests of the child. Um, And also part of it is because there have been so many unaccompanied minors who've been coming to the border to cross illegally. for the opportunity to stay here, the agencies simply are overwhelmed and they they do not want to have 
a public image of crowded facilities or overwhelmed officials. So they try to move them in as quickly as and in and out as quickly as possible to make it look like all is well, we're in control of the situation, nothing to see here. And Jessica, do you agree with that philosophy? No, I do not. I, this is really at odds with our standards for, for example, foster care placements. These are kids. And it's uh, the obligation of the government to make sure that they are placing them in a situation that is not going to be abusive, that that one a situation that is going to be safe and appropriate for the welfare of that child. They should not be just turning them over as quickly as they can. We would we would never do that um, for um, uh, an adoption situation or a foster care placement. There's a careful home study that's done, a financial assessment, a background check of everyone in the household, not to mention regular follow-up on how the child is doing to make sure that they're still okay. Last question so, here, Jessica. All that's I want to get your perspective on this. Is there any collaboration between state officials and the CDC to ensure that contagious diseases are being contained? And if not, what's the solution? No, the the Department of Health and Human Services does not notify or consult with state and local agencies before they place kids into communities. They simply do not. They These placements occur without any kind of collaboration whatsoever. That's a problem for the local communities who would like to be prepared for health reasons, for schooling, for other uh, considerations, housing, and, and you know they just would like to know who is coming into their community, uh, but all that is off the table, and it really should be mandated in these kind of placements. Well, Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies, I do really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you. Some international coverage to come. Spain finds itself in a political stalemate after a nail-biter election failed to grant a clear majority. And wildfires prompt thousands of tourist evacuations on the Greek island of Rhodes as the country continues to grapple with severe heat. More after the break. Keep it down because, you know, we're interviewing Robert F. Kennedy Jr. today, and he's the first Democrat to talk about freedom and free speech in a long time. I'm Robert Kennedy. I'm running for president of the United States. Hey, Roger. Good to what meet you. What a pleasure you. to meet you. Well, I, uh, I, I lost that mic already. The mic fell down into my... We meet again by the Mississippi. If you want to know specifically what I would do with the CIA. Yeah, I'd love to know. The, really, the dangerous part of the CIA is the plans division, controlling the media, doing all this uh, mischief and monkey business around the world. You know all the stuff with the CIA and his computer. But, and this, uh, but hold on a second. Good to have you back. A key U.S. ally has taken a big step to counter China's dominance in the rare earth market. Japanese metals maker Proterial has developed a prototype motor for electric vehicles. According to Nikkei Asia, the new magnet consists mainly of ferrite. 
The company said tests have proved the new motor is capable of delivering the output needed for electric vehicles. The ferret magnet will replace widely used magnets containing a rare earth metal found mainly in China. China previously suspended rare earth exports to Japan in 2010, and now Japan seeks to bring its reliance down to 50 percent by 2025. Additionally, China is restricting exports of two rare earth minerals crucial to semiconductor manufacturing as a response to U.S. export controls. Spaniards were greeted by political gridlock today. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the country's general election, where conservatives failed to clinch the decisive victory predicted. The results from Sunday's vote ensure that neither the liberal or conservative bloc have an easy path to form a government. The center-right People's Party and the conservative Vox won a combined 169 seats in parliament, while the ruling socialists and far-left Sumar won 153. 176 seats are needed for a majority. After winning the most seats, the People's Party will be given the first stab at trying to form a government, but its alliance with the conservative Vox will make it difficult to gain support from other factions. People's Party leader Alberto Núñez Fejo says they won the elections and deserve to try and form a government. I expressly ask the Socialist Party and the rest of political forces not to block Spain's government once again. Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez's socialists have more options but face potentially unpalatable demands from Catalan separatist parties. The separatist Junts party could be key in allowing the socialist Sánchez to form a new government. Junts general secretary said on Monday the party will seek to use the window of opportunity created by Spain's national election to achieve Catalan independence. He is calling for an independence referendum and political amnesty to resolve Catalonia's political conflict. That could trigger the kind of chaos seen in 2017 when Catalonia last tried to break from Spain. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A state of emergency was declared in Nova Scotia after severe flooding. The Canadian province received its largest rainfall in over 50 years. The storm dumped over 10 inches of rain in 24 hours in some areas. The resulting floods have damaged bridges, roads and homes. Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston said the damage was pretty unimaginable. In two separate cases, police continue searching for missing people. One case involves two children and the other a man and a youth. In both cases, the cars they were in became submerged in floodwaters. They have been missing Saturday. Severe heat continues in Greece. Thousands of tourists have been evacuated on the island of Rhodes after wildfires had been ravaging parts of the island for nearly a week. And Didi's cost Jimenez has more. Firefighters battled to control the blaze on Sunday. Planes dropped water near the villages of Apollona and Kiotari as thick smoke continued to rise and fill the air. As night fell, the sky was illuminated orange as the fire burned. Tourists had to be evacuated from several seaside towns after the blaze had been raging for days. More than 2,000 tourists were carried from beaches on Saturday. In what authorities have described as one of the biggest evacuation operations Greece has conducted, some tour operators have cancelled all flights to Rhodes. Temperatures over the past week have exceeded 104 degrees in many parts of Greece, with almost half of the country under risk from wildfires. 
Thirteen departments, including the Attica region where the capital city of Athens is located, were under red alert on Sunday. Some tourists there spoke about the sweltering heat. It's difficult. We just keep on drinking water. We try not to uh, stay in too much in the sun. Greece has a fantastic temperature in summer for, you know, summer living, I guess. This might be a little bit on the extreme, but I think we can cope. The heat wave could last until August. Cost MNS, NTD News. And now let's get to some short headlines from around the world. In the northeastern Chinese city of Chichihar, the concrete roof of a school gymnasium collapsed, killing at least 11 people. State media reported that many victims are believed to be young female volleyball players. Authorities said the illegal stacking of materials in the roof may have caused it to cave in. An overloaded passenger boat designed to carry 20 people capsized off Indonesia's Sulawesi Island, killing 15 people. Authorities said 33 other passengers survived. Accidents occur frequently in Indonesia, an archipelago with more than 17,000 islands. The Italian city of Padua has begun removing the names of non-biological mothers of same-sex couples from children's birth certificates. The move has triggered a backlash from the LGBT community. The government insists it's in line with existing laws. Italy does not allow same-sex marriages, but only civil unions. Law enforcement from five countries have disrupted an intercontinental criminal network that was smuggling migrants from Cuba to the European Union. Europol and Interpol said 62 people were arrested. It's suspected that the criminals successfully smuggled around 5,000 Cubans. Coming up, a big announcement from Elon Musk. Twitter's logo is getting a new look. And a brewing company that pays tribute to the U.S. military rides a wave of so-called anti-woke sentiment in the wake of the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light controversy. Welcome back. More than 30 people were injured on Saturday after a deck collapsed at a Montana country club. The incident happened during a weekend golf tournament at the venue. The collapse happened when the second-story patio floor of Billings' Briarwood Country Club broke and gave way, causing head wounds, broken ribs, and other injuries as people landed on top of each other. More than two dozen people were taken to local hospitals. Eight were treated on site. Police say additional guests may have left injured, but there were no fatalities. The cause of the collapse has yet to be determined. And wildfires also ravaged parts of Washington state yesterday. A new round of evacuations was forced by the blaze, which swept through Klickitat County in the southern part of the state. Local authorities reported more than 50,000 acres were burned in three days. The blaze known as the Newell Road Fire is said to be the largest Klickitat County in history and is still 0% contained. According to officials, the fire has destroyed several structures in the area. It's also threatening homes, farms, crops and livestock, as well as solar and wind farms and a natural gas pipeline. The county remains under red flag alert with high winds and low humidity. Officials are unsure on what caused the fire. There have been no reports of injuries or deaths. 
A big announcement from Elon Musk. Twitter's logo is changing. Musk is opting to replace the familiar bluebird with an X symbol. The change might be rolled out globally as soon as today. That's right, and Musk wrote on his Twitter account soon, we shall bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. This is not the first time Musk has embraced the letter X. His rocket company is commonly known as SpaceX. In 1999, he started X.com, which is now known as PayPal. Musk also tweeted in October of creating an everything app, which he would call X. Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino tweeted yesterday that X will transform the global town square to one centered in audio, video, messaging, payments and banking. The move to change Twitter's logo comes as the company faces new competition from Meta's new app called Threads, launched earlier this month. Well, I have to say when they changed it to the dog meme, that was nice too. Oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> All right. Now at a time when some companies are being accused of catering to a so-called woke agenda in the era of ESG, one company is going a different route. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with CEO Alan Beal from Armed Forces Brewing Company, which pays homage to the American military. One of the company owners and board of directors member is Rob O'Neill. He's the Navy SEAL who says he shot and killed Osama bin Laden. I'm Robert J. O'Neill, former Navy SEAL Team 6 operator. CEO Alan Beal says America seems to be catching on to Armed Forces Brewing Company like wildfire. We're a very patriotic company. We love America. We love our veterans and active duty and our first responders. We're proud of our beer um, and we're making a lot of great beers that, that tribute uh, the men and women who've served uh, their, their service uh, in uh, our, our U.S. military and, and uh, law enforcement. Beal says the results are in from extensive taste testing and development under the watchful eye of Chief Brewing Officer Bob Rupprecht. Bob's just a great brewmaster, by the way. He's just making really great uh, craft, mainstream craft beer. You got to have great, great liquid. <laughs> and um, we, we just had great success at, our, at all of our tastings um, in the military exchange stores that we test marketed this in. Beal discussed whether the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney backlash created a demand for masculine patriotic products. I'd be lying if I said no. <laughs> it has. Our sales have jumped anywhere. Uh, I mean, we were up at 600% at one time. Um, we're still, we're still, you know, way above average. Beal feels it's unfortunate that brands feel the need to do that kind of marketing where they seem to forget who their audience is. And he addressed whether masculinity is under attack in general. Tell you what, there's a lot of masculinity in our company. We know who we are. Uh, we've got a lot of great veterans in there. And, um, you know, we're, we're patriotic. We love America. We love uh, the Constitution. We love guns, <laughs> which is, you know, and... and um, yeah, masculinity rocks. Beal says the company isn't just making great beer, it's also lending a helping hand to those who have given their service to the country. We've been doing that all along. We work with Code of Vets, Gretchen Smith's organization, um, <clears throat> who does incredible work. We helped her, her organization, uh, prevent a couple uh, veterans that were about to be evicted and go homeless over Christmas. Beal says the company also channeled behind the scenes with some veterans that had some really bad PTSD and were contemplating suicide. And a percentage of profits from one of their beers goes to a veteran charity. Armed Forces beer is currently distributed in eight states, but Beal says more are on the way shortly.
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, we look into some controversy in dietary recommendations in the U.S. Ultra-processed food is at the center. Is it good for you? What the government says might surprise you. What is China like, really? Is it defined by its giant economy, an oppressive government, or its people? By the worst persecutors or the most courageous freedom fighters? We're lifting the veil to look at global impacts and how close the regime is to your doorstep. From eyewitnesses and analysts, get the facts. Here on China in Focus. Good to have you back with us. We take a moment to delve into nutrition and public health. What do canned chili, frozen hash browns, and liquid eggs have in common? They're all part of a controversial menu U.S. government scientists are promoting. I investigated this. Take a look. I'm here in the heart of New York City where life is busy, and making that homemade stir-fryer stew from fresh meats and vegetables can take a lot longer than a New York minute. The convenience of ultra-processed foods is one of the reasons why they're sought after. But can you have the ease of these foods and still eat healthy? Well, there's a study by the USDA that says there's a menu with 91% of the calories coming from ultra-processed foods that's healthy for you. The question is, who wrote this study? And is it valid? I spoke with Marion Nessel, Professor Emerita of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University to find out. When we zoom in on this study, Marion, one of the authors, Mark Messina, he's part of the Soy Nutrition Institute Global, and that takes money from soybean farmers and other manufacturers of soy ingredients. There are a lot of soy ingredients in this menu of this study, so does this present a conflict of interest? Well, it certainly does, and this study is full of conflicts of interest, not least from the Department of Agriculture, which funded it and is a participant in the study, the Department of Agriculture is a really interesting agency because on the one hand, it's responsible for dietary guidelines, which among other things are looking at whether ultra-processed foods should be, they should be advising people to eat less of ultra-processed foods um, because they're, they usually have a lot of salt, sugar, and saturated fat in them, which the dietary guidelines advise against. Um, and so it, 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 on the one hand, is responsible for uh, dietary guidelines. On the other hand, here it is sponsoring this study, which was deliberately designed to attack the concept of ultra-processed foods. There's no other reason for doing a study like this. It's an artificial study. It set up a straw man, in a way, because they haven't actually fed this diet to anybody. This isn't a, a diet that people have been put on to see whether it's healthy or not. It's just something they made up. That's a good point, Marion. And that one of the authors, again, Julie Hess, she said that this is a proof of concept study, meaning that this quote-unquote healthy menu is feasible. But nutritional scientist Kevin Hall pointed out that it hasn't been actually tested. So how do we know if this study is really healthy like they claim it? Well, I think the concept that they were trying to prove is actually a concept they were trying to disprove. They were trying to disprove the idea that ultra-processed food should be limited in, in the diet. They're, the whole purpose of this study was to demonstrate that the concept of ultra-processed foods is meaningless, despite the fact that there have been literally hundreds of studies linking it to 
taking in more calories, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, certain kinds of cancers, overall mortality, um, worse outcome from COVID-19. I mean, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that, that do this correlation. Okay, correlation is not necessarily causation, but the study done by Kevin Hall at NIH was done in a controlled metabolic ward. Nobody can control studies as well as he can, where there's no cheating and people eat what they're given. And that study showed without any question that the people who were eating ultra-processed diets consumed 500 calories a day more on average. 500 calories a day is a huge difference. You're lucky in most dietary studies if you get a difference of 50 calories. And he saw 500 and was completely shocked because his hypothesis going into that study was that the processing would not make any difference. And it did, big time. Neither the USDA nor Mark Messina responded to requests for comment by airtime. However, some people in New York shared their comments on the study and ultra-processed foods more broadly. Do you find that ultra-processed foods being linked to cancer and early death is concerning? Uh, yes, that's why I don't eat that much of them, is because of the health risks. Carlos, 60% of the calories Americans consume come from ultra-processed foods. What's your reaction to that? I think people should realize that eating that kind of food is not going to help them uh, to have a good health. On eating healthy, it's the way to go. Did you know that packaged foods like frozen meals have been linked to cognitive decline, depression, and anxiety? Uh, no, I didn't know that. What does that make you feel like? Like I definitely don't want to have it. <laughs> Coming up, a man who overcame his troubled past is now set to graduate with certifications needed to become a U.S. Army captain. He tells us his story after the break. All right, Evelyn, I'm ready to be inspired. What do you have for us? Yeah, I have Justin Batana's story. He had to flee from his home when he was just five years old. That's after a massacre killed his parents and two of his older siblings. Fast forward a few years, though, he's now set to graduate with all of their certifications required to become a U.S. Army captain. He told us his story. Joining me now is Justin Batana to tell us more about his incredible story. Good morning, Justin. Let's start with your childhood in Congo. What do you remember from that? And if you can tell us more about fleeing your village. My childhood in the, in the village was really fun um, until at uh, the beginning of the civil war, of course, when everything changed and we have to flee uh, to Rwanda. But the beginning was really good until, of course, uh, when everything changed, so yeah. I can only imagine how tough of a journey that must be just to lose your parents. How did you feel at this point? And um, walk me through how you, were a how you were able to deal with those feelings at such a young age. Growing up, uh, I, it was not uh, um, very hurtful until I grew up. Uh, when I became an adult, that's when I began to visualize everything and uh, trying to relearn the history and uh, what happened um, but I've got I've gotten over it and uh, I'm stronger and how would you describe life as a refugee in the Rwandan camp 
In the refuge, actually, surprisingly, life was very fun. Uh, I was surrounded by um, my cousins, the community, and um, but life was not always easy in the refugee camp, as uh, you can imagine. But uh, for most part, when you are with surrounded with your community, uh, life gets fun. Now, fast forward to moving to Denver. How did this happen and how was that move like? So around 2019, correction, 2009, uh, we applied uh, to come to the United States to study uh, through the United Nations uh, resettlement program. Uh, we got accepted and luckily we came to the States uh, in 2011, specifically in Denver, Colorado. And why did you decide to join the U.S. military? Um, the main reason is really related to my background. Uh, when I was growing up, I saw so much violence and uh, um, for most part, the professional Rwandan army where I grew up uh, managed to stop the violence. That's why I was really inspired to one day become a soldier and uh, hopefully play a part uh, to stop any violence anywhere as a professional soldier. Well, wow, yeah, I think it must have taken a lot of dedication to get here. How was that journey like to get a degree in a foreign country and then all the way to graduating and entering the military? How was that journey like? Adjusting to the life in the United States was not easy uh, because uh, my English was very limited, but I took the advantage of the government uh, programs uh, to study ESL or English as a second language. And that was the beginning for me to uh, transition into college. And on that journey, did you think you've learned any life lessons, anything that you would think you would like to share with our audience today? Um, really, uh, every situation is different for anyone. But uh, what I can say is if you try hard, people will notice. And uh, most of the time, people are willing to help uh, if you are trying your best. Well, I think it's absolutely incredible what you've been through and where it has brought you. So thank you so much, Justin Batana, for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me. And he says after his parents died, he and his other siblings had an aunt that took custody of them. So they were surrounded by their cousins as well. And he said they felt very loved growing up. Family is just so powerful. And you know, Evelyn, it is really great to see people with resilience like that being leaders in the U.S. military. That's right. And what really struck me was that he was so able to focus on the positive aspects of life. Incredible. Great story. Hmm. All right. That's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us a new email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.